This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. So anyway, let's get to it. Guys, Van Lathan is here, host of the amazing, amazing Higher Learning Podcast, one of my favorites. I mean, look, nothing more needs to be said, but let me set the stage here. So this year, February means two things. Most Americans know it means Black History Month, which for me at least is always a great opportunity for learning new things I think are important. But here's what most people don't know. It's also when Jews across the world are going to celebrate the traditional holiday of Purim. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking about that scene in 30 Rock when Josh negotiates to get off for every Jewish holiday, no matter how ridiculous. And you're wondering, is Purim a real holiday? And the answer is yes. And not only that, but if you're following along in your Bible, Purim is the holiday when we read the book of Esther. And we remember how the government and mainstream society, the Persian Empire, conspired to destroy a vulnerable minority population, Jewish people. And how members of that minority community, like Esther herself, stood up against injustice and fought for their salvation. So what that means is that February in 2021 is going to be a month when both the Jewish and black communities in America reflect on a past marked both by deep pain and injustice and courage in the face of oppression. Now, normally, we reflect on these things apart from each other. And in fact, it sometimes seems like we only ever talk to each other after a crisis, like, say, if one of us offended the other. And this is genuinely one of the most insane features of our culture and society. And it's hard to imagine two communities better able to speak to the soul of this nation, whether to urge it onward to fulfill its purpose, like Isaiah, or to call it to account, like Jeremiah or Ezekiel. And the moral and spiritual vocabulary of this country has been shaped by our respective traditions and our two communities and our leaders more than any other. And I've literally lost sleep at night in preparation for this, thinking about what we could accomplish if we actually stood shoulder to shoulder and did this thing together. But this will only come to pass if we stop letting events force us together and instead make these friendships happen ourselves. So to talk about all this, I brought on one of the most thoughtful, brilliant people I know, host of the Higher Learning Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network, my new friend, the amazing Van Lathan. Van, thank you so much for being here. I am thrilled to be here with you today, Ari. So Van and I met through some crazy circumstance. We hung out. We had like a heart to heart for an hour where just like spilled our guts. And I was on a Higher Learning with uh, Van and the amazing Rachel Lindsay, and it was a fantastic time. And now uh, Van's here on Good Faith Effort. So Van, here's the thing. I actually find Jewish black dialogue or whatever completely exhausting. And yet I was extremely excited to be on your podcast with Rachel and to have you on my podcast. And I want to just quickly explain why, and then I want to get into it. Sure. So I feel like whenever our two communities talk to each other, we're always responding to like one of two things. Either someone in one of our communities offended the other, so like Deshaun Jackson posting anti-Semitic quotes or Dove Hyken wearing blackface, 
or someone outside our two communities offended one or both of us. So like sometimes it's Jews asking black folks to protest David Duke or sometimes it's black folks asking Jews to do it. But either way, we're protesting some bigoted outsider. And that's it. Those are the two typologies. And I find that exhausting, not because those conversations aren't necessary. They are. But because at the end of the day, it's just our communities doing exactly what minority communities are expected to do. Constantly play defense. So majority communities get to invest plenty of time in playing offense and being imaginative instead of just responsive. And by the way, the same thing goes for like the wealthy versus the rest of us, by the way. Normal people have a checking account and you're expected to pay your bills. And sometimes that checking account is bigger or it's smaller. But either way, we think of it as there to pay for stuff. But if you're wealthy enough, then all of a sudden the money you have in the bank isn't a checking account. It's not paying for stuff. Now, all of a sudden it's capital and you can invest it in opportunities and grow the pot even bigger. So that's the dynamic I feel our communities are locked into. And it's why I'm so tired of it. We each have checking accounts of goodwill towards each other and the rest of society. And we feel, and sometimes we're told that we have to watch that balance, like be frugal, don't take any chances because who knows when the next bigotry bill is going to come due. Right. And I definitely get that because we obviously, we have to deal with injustices, large and small, you know, noticeable and less noticeable. But if we don't ever make some positive investments and yeah, take on some risks, then we're going to get locked into this dynamic forever. So first of all, how does that analysis strike you? And then how do we get our two communities into a dynamic where we're asking ourselves not just what can we prevent, but what can we build together? The dynamic is true. It's true for most cultures, for most differing groups of cultures, as long as there's not some sort of historical acrimony, right? There are a couple of cultures out there, and some of them even exist here in L.A., that have a tremendous amount to get over because of things that have happened. Uh, And that goes for black America and mainstream white America. You know, before we can move forward, there has to be sort of a, I'd say, a reconciliation that hasn't happened quite yet. For our two respective cultures, I think what we've never tried to do is establish a joint account. Is I don't think that we've ever sat down and had a real conversation about the things that we have in common. I'm always struck that so many of the people that I grew up with think that the characters in my Bible are different than the characters that are in yours. Mm. Uh, That they don't understand that the stories of David and the stories of Isaiah and the stories of Abraham, that we share that in common. And, you know, there's another religion that also shares a lot of those same characters in common as well, right? But they think that because culturally there's some sort of difference, that there's also a difference in the very brass tack spiritually. Now, there are, of course, some differences. Obviously, they're different religions. But there's a lot in common that we don't ever fully have conversations about. And I think that speaks to two things. Number one, I think cultural ignorance is a state of American being because America is such an aspirational place. And there's been such a specific aspiration that people have had, which is to be American. And even though the beauty of being an American is actually in its lack of definition, meaning that anyone can attain it, the sort of pernicious thing about the definition is that there has been someone that's viewed as more American in this country than everybody else. And that's the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male. And so because we don't fit into that, we're chasing something that sets very, very defined boundaries. And if you're not that, you're other. 
And so the more the others other, the more they get in the habit of othering each other. Because if I get pushed into my corner, it's the only place that I feel safe. So if I'm over here sectioned off and I've been put here and you're over there sectioned off and you've been put there, it takes a great deal of effort to find some sort of middle because these places where we've existed are the places we feel most safe. And historically for both your people and my people, we've been in places where we've existed as who we fully are. There have been just disgusting ramifications for being us. And so now there's a there's a spirit of protection that we feel. Let's protect this. Let's stop this. Let's be on the lookout. Let's be hypervigilant for the next time that that's coming. The next shoe is going to drop. The next charlatan or demagogue is coming. Let's be ready for it. Let's be armed. And all of that time you spend in anxiety, you you just can't spend in love. It's impossible. So I think the first things we need to do is, like you said, in times where there isn't a beast to slay, no dragon, we don't need a knight. Let's just talk about kind of what it is that we have in common. Because what we have in common is important, but the differences are important too. Let's toast to humanity and have conversations with one another. And so, you know, I think that that's, I think that that's really important. And, you know, one thing about black people is we dig culture. We dig it. Culture is all we have. So when we see it in other people, it excites us. There's a, a video that goes around, and I'm, I'm not going to even try to pinpoint the exact culture, but it's these guys, and they're doing a dance at a wedding, and they are freaking this dance. That's how we roll at weddings. <laughs> they, they are freaking this dance. They are freaking it. And the reason why that gets us so excited is because there's a commonality. We get loose at weddings. Like, we like to jam in a very coordinated and real way, and it's a part of it. And when we see old other cultures doing that as well, in rhythm, with their own style, with their own flair, with their own grace, it makes you feel more human. And I think we need more moments where we feel more human. But I love the idea that it's not just our commonalities, it's also our differences that can also bring us together. And not only bring us together, but bring us together in a more real way than if we just pretended we were all the same. Like, you know what I mean? And here's where... As like a deeply religious, like passionate person myself, you know, and being very proud of the traditional Jewish community that I come from, here's a place where I I actually feel like a fair bit of envy for the black American community. And I don't think most people in my community have thought about it this way, you know, because we kind of keep to ourselves a lot. And that's part of what I want to talk about. But if you explain this this way to them, it would make total sense to everyone I grew up with. So I look at like hip hop or rap, or kind of like that whole culture. And I look at it and I say, this is a culture, and this is a a musical expression of saying, we're going to make our music. We're going to make music that we like to listen to. And there are going to be a lot of inside references, and there's going to be a lot of kind of musical cues that other people don't get if you're not like indigenous to this culture. And we're just going to do it, and we're going to do it in public, and you can either like it or not like it. And it's like this countercultural movement, but it takes over the mainstream. And it's so influential and it shapes how all of us talk, how all of us think about politics, all of us interact. And I look at that and I I frankly, I feel so envious because we have this kind of tradition of wisdom that we really revere also. Like we have these like unique ways of being, right? Like we have these unique ways of dancing, of singing, of cooking, of, of studying, of educating and doing all these things. And we haven't been able to take it out into the mainstream. Like, like the most we get is like 
Seinfeld or Woody Allen, right? It's like sad, right? Right. It's like comedic. It's like, <laughs> well, those guys are great. No, they're amazing. Like I know every yeah. Seinfeld episode by heart, right? Right. But it's not like Seinfeld isn't Judaism. It's being Jewish in America, right? Sure. Yeah. So is that kind of the basis for for thinking together? Like what I love and kind of what I envision in my in my wildest dreams is. Not us coming and saying, oh, we have so much in common, like we face so many of the same enemies, like that's what we're doing now. Right. But kind of coming together and saying, hey, like here's what we bring to the table uniquely. And the other community coming and saying, here's what we bring to the table uniquely. And now let's think about how we can take those two things and actually transform this society for the better. Yeah, I agree. A couple of things. Number one, there's a very, very specific experience as far as black people as it relates to American mainstream culture. It's not that another culture here doesn't have it. I don't think there's a culture anywhere else on earth that has it. It's a great point. Because there are a lot of things that were born in America, right? But there is nothing that was more born in and of America than black Americans. Because as grotesque as this fact is, for the majority of us, there's nothing before this. There's nothing before this country. Our history doesn't even exist before this country because it was all taken. So we can't look back 400 years. Well, we can look back 400 years. We can't look back. But not 401 years, right? Right. 600, 700 years. We don't know the tribes that we might have come from in Ghana or Nigeria. I guess you can find out now through some DNA testing. We're, We're searching for that, right? So everything that we have was built right here. That in and of itself means that the most American forms of expression are largely based in our experiences. So if if you're talking about American dance or American rock and roll, American, a lot of that stuff is forged, not all of it, but a lot of that stuff is forged out of our experiences and how we interpret it where we were here in America, right? Hip hop is just another chapter in that story, right? You have Muddy Waters down in Mississippi who starts strumming on his guitar and making a very specific type of music, right? He's making that very specific type of music, right? Then some guys across the pond hear it. You know what I mean? They're the Beatles, they're the Rolling Stones. They blow that music up or Elvis or whoever else. Or then you have jazz, you have blues all coming from gospel. And then there's a weird mix to where country comes from gospel and bluegrass and it's all of this stuff. Everyone has their own music and dance. But what I'm saying is that a lot of that goes back generations as far as black people's contributions to American society. So, And it's all born out of that tradition. And it's all born out of that tradition. And it's very old. It begins as soon as we begin. So in many ways, all of that expression had a head start because even old Negro spirituals that are largely about finding freedom and peace in a hereafter, in the hereafter, right? That has to do with people's experiences and that actually comes from somewhere. So I think a lot of that stuff, it's distinctly American, maybe the most American of things, right? And even still to that point, it fails to even scratch the surface of defining what and who we are, right? And I think that's a key to understand. It's very key to understand that the best way to understand black Americans isn't to listen to anything or see anything, but it is to talk to something. And that's a black person. That's one thing that we know that there is some cultural homogeneity, of course, but I'm from Louisiana, South Louisiana. The people that I know down there are nothing like the brothers out here. 
And they're nothing like the brothers in Harlem. They got their own style, their own swag, their own thing. They're like the people in South Carolina, some of my Geechees and those people like that. They talk completely different. They have a different connection. Everything is different. Where I'm from, there is a mixture of, of Haitian culture, of Spanish culture, of the indigenous natives that lived there. You know what I mean? Uh, and that gets balled all into a pot and then we come out kind of Creole. A lot of it's very complicated, but that's the beauty of people. Something else... To be honest with you, I personally envy about Judaism, about the Jews that I've known here, is that you do know. Every custom is, and if I speak out of turn or if I say something ignorant, please stop me. Every custom seems to be thousands of years old. And it seems to be that there's a sense of cultural service that bonds in a way. That sometime, at some point, some group of people had to endure this. So we will remember them and continue to thrive and remember that sacrifice. And it's going to affect what we eat. It's going to affect how we talk to one another. It's going to affect how we community build. It's going to affect all of those things to the degree that I know. I don't know. But, you know, like I told you, I, I worked for God. He was a Jewish guy. He was uh, like a proud atheist. But when it was time to observe and go to temple, he went. He went because his father had instilled in him that there were things that were bigger than him. And that is something right there, that if we could just take that, wipe all the culture out of it, and just give that idea to Americans, it would fix our country overnight. I feel like I'm going to burst out of my body right now. I don't want to speak uh -huh. out of turn. So uh -huh. I'm going to tell you how I experienced that story that you just told. Uh -huh. uh, but like I said, correct me if I'm telling it wrong. We had this conversation, and I told you about this experience that I had where I, like, I have my daughter and on my shelf, you know, we have a book by my great-great-grandfather, and he was a big scholar, you know, and he lived in Jerusalem, and we can study it together. And I remember kind of telling that story very proudly. And the way you responded just now with, like, guess what? I don't have that. Right. And I, I genuinely could not sleep that night. I genuinely could not sleep. And I'm thinking about it almost the other way now, which is, you're right. I had never thought of, of Black American culture as, like, the American, that is the American culture. It's the only thing that was quite literally built here. I'd never thought about it that way. That's brilliant. And by the way, from the Jewish perspective, we sort of have this similar kind of longing, but the total opposite, which is, you know, like I look at so much of the founding ideals of the country, a lot of the founding texts, you know, the you like you look at some of the earliest theorists of republicanism before the founding fathers who taught the founding fathers like in Europe in the 17th century they're all reading rabbinic literature they're not talking to Jews about it but they're reading rabbinic literature and like that's where they're getting their ideas of liberty from there's this book called the Hebrew Republic by Eric Nelson is a guy at Harvard who talks about how kind of not just biblical ideas but like Jewish ideas specifically are at the root of the founding and we kind of look at this country and we say all these ideas that everyone's so excited about are built on our texts and our traditions, but we had no part of teaching those things. No one spoke to us about those things. And like now no one remembers that we had any role in that. And so we kind of have to then. It almost feels like your culture was appropriated. It's well, we should come up. We should come up. We should make that into a thing. <laughs> and, uh. <laughs> So, but I, but I, I kind of want to get back to what you said earlier about like what the solution is, because what you said spoke so powerfully to me. I think you're exactly right. Part of the challenge of contemporary America 
is that a lot of people are convinced that if we could just design the perfect system, right, with the perfect checks and balances and the perfect theories of rights and how they work, then we'd be good. Right. But what that ignores is the fact that stories are actually way more powerful than systems. Mm-hmm. And the problem we have is that so many people across this country are just telling and experiencing like fundamentally different stories. Right. And maybe those stories aren't perfectly coherent, right? Like, oh, maybe there's a statistic that doesn't comport exactly with this narrative. Mm-hmm. But guess what? There's a reason the Bible is the best-selling book of all time, while Plato's books need like bougie graduate seminars if they're going to get read. Right. Because one is story and one is system. So the Bible is also just wildly entertaining. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's why the only thing that turns some people off about the Bible is, you know, the, the way it's written, right? Sometimes it's hard for people to follow. But if you just get yourself a plain old text and you want to have some wild stories, just wildness, we're talking about everything that you can see in the best movie. The Bible is both Real Housewives plus the MCU. Plus Game plus of Thrones. <laughs> Game of Thrones. It's all of it. I mean, monsters are slayed. I mean... People find their destiny. People are anointed. The whole nine, every hero story ever. The ending is spectacular as well. But like, you know, <laughs> no, spo- uh, but, this is a no spoilers podcast. Don't man. no spoilers. But, 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 but what I'm saying it's 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 really amazing. And you know, in a different America, you'd make a movie with the complete Hollywood treatment that would just tell those stories. But you know, everybody's got a different opinion. Okay, so I have like so many hot takes on that. Holy cow. Right. Like my my right. by the way, my best take on that is like you can see the decline of our society in the journey from the Ten Commandments, like Charlton Heston and Cecil B. DeMille. One of my favorite movies ever. Cecil DeMille. It's the greatest American movie, to the Prince of Egypt, which I also happen to know by heart because I watched it growing up. But you could see the decline there because Cecil B. DeMille knew that it wasn't even worth telling the story of the Exodus if you didn't tell the story of the Ten Commandments. And like here, are the it's not just what we're running from. It's the values we're running toward. Here are the things that are going right. to shape your life. Prince of Egypt, which is which is a remake of the Ten Commandments. That's how Jeffrey Katzenberg sold it to DreamWorks. They cut the Ten Commandments scene. Like you see the tablets, but it cuts out. It's like one second of it because it's right. just escaping from something. It's not actually running towards values. It's just like, we're free. Great. But If all you are is free, well, guess what you're free to do? Oppress people, be a tyrant. Like, you're free to do lots of things. So, first of all, like, what stories do you think Americans or white Americans need to hear that they're not hearing now? And second of all, is it even possible to tell a story about American society at large, like the whole society, one that preserves our sense of purpose, but also faces up to our evils and failures? Like, that seems like the holy grail to me. And I want to know, is it possible? Yeah, it is. But it's difficult to listen with privilege. It's very hard. Privilege is used as something that uh, it's used as a virus that infects one group. And and it's almost seen as if the symptoms of the virus are only felt by everyone else. Privilege and supremacy are debilitating to the person as well that benefits from it. Because it takes from your humanity. We were meant to share. We were meant to understand. That's the divinity in us. You know, that thing, I'm walking down the street here on La Cienega, La Cienega and Pico over here. I'm, I'm your people here. I would say you're around a lot of good kosher restaurants, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm walking down the street in La Cienega and there are these children. There's a school there, a uh, Hebrew school. There's these children and they're playing. This was God that did this because it was the height of the pandemic and I was incredibly depressed and I was taking early morning walks just to clear my mind. And this kid runs to the fence and he goes, hey, 
And I'm like, hi. <laughs> and then he runs back and he gets three more kids and they run to the fence. And he goes, hello, hi. And then they all wave. And I stop and I and they're so happy. And I stop and I go, hello, hi, how are you guys? And they go, have a nice day. And then they run back. The kids, that's what's in them. What they're born with is the need to connect the need to show joy, to feel joy, the need to, for you to feel a part of them. They're born with that. We have to teach it out of them for their safety. So at some point somewhere, somebody might say, hey, there's a six foot four black guy in a hoodie. He's not safe to talk to. You might live a little bit longer if you ignore him. You might live a little bit longer if you ignore what he's going through. You might live a little bit longer and have it better if he is completely out of your frame of reference because they got all of these things going on and that has nothing to do with you. That might happen to them. That might not. I know it happened to me. I know most other people probably happened to them. These are the set of things that you have to care about in your life. These are the set of things that you're going to have to overcome. And these are yours. No one can share them because no one can understand them. That's asking too much. And for white people in America, it's affecting them. Oppressing people, whether you're doing it actively or whether or not you're doing it by just not undoing it, it's debilitating to you. It makes you less human. It's affecting everyone. We're getting less capitalization on entire groups of people because we're living under the assumption that in order for you to be great, somebody has to be terrible. When a tenet of the religion that I share is that God created endless bounty, infinite bounty. Bounty that we couldn't count if we tried. He created it for us to share. So if you're not sharing it, you're defying him. So for me, I think the answers to the problem is just figuring out not what it is that we can share in. Because sharing is actually probably, we're past that. It's what can we build now? Because when you build something together, you inherently share it. And that's another issue with America is it wasn't built equitably, right? It wasn't built all hands on deck. It was built on the backs of our labor and on the backs of a supremacy by people who were telling everybody else, all men are created equal, but not everybody can share in this. Women didn't have a say. We didn't have a say, all of that. We did the work, but we didn't have a fair share. So now I will look at my friend Ari and I would be like, there are so many misconceptions I had about Jewish people before I came out here. And it wasn't any of the bad ones. It was just the ones, well, I guess they're all bad. It was just the <laughs> ones that like, for example, I grew up around a lot of Jewish people in Baton Rouge, but I never played ball with them. And I remember I would watch movies like Airplane and in Airplane, you know this joke in Airplane? Heck yeah. <laughs> it, there's a joke and, it, and she says, uh, what, what I want to read, what do you want to read? Famous Jewish athletes and it's like a little tiny exactly. pamphlet, right? It's a hysterical That's like joke. famous in the Jewish community, man. Like we go through every movie and catalog all the Jewish jokes. Right. We watch The Big right. Lebowski like 90 times. You know? Right. So it, 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 it's funny, right? And so that, therefore, whenever there's a Sean Green or a Hank Greenberg or, yeah. or somebody like that, it's like a big deal. Well, when I got to LA, coincidentally enough, I would play ball at the LA Fitness. I know exactly right, what you're talking about. <laughs> right in this area off 18th Street, like right close to here. I used to live here before. I, There's I, some good I, Jewish ball players there. <laughs> bro, it was black guys and Jewish guys. <laughs> and also, it was the first time that I realized that there is 
all different sorts of subsects in, I guess, Jewish culture, if I'm saying that the right way, meaning yeah, that yeah. it's the first time I met Persians that were Jewish. That's right. So we're all playing, and I just learned so much. This one guy comes, I saw him not too long ago, actually. Uh, this one guy, I see him doing some stuff before the game. He's like limbering up. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, man, I'm doing this like Israeli martial art. And he's like, I just started doing it. I was like, what's it called? He says, Craft My God. And I was like, what? He's like, you guys? He's like, yeah, man, it's the it's the craziest. And, <laughs> and, and so, and I'm learning all of this because I'm sharing something with people, which is basketball. And we're playing. And the idea that these guys aren't good athletes was obliterated. At least for me, at least for the ones that I knew that came there to play ball, like Demis and the rest of those guys, they could hoop. Like, for real. <laughs> And it wasn't anything that I had to be open to. It wasn't anything that I had to like. It wasn't a chore. It was just life. Just people doing something together. Right. It, was, it wasn't like diversity training. Here's what nah, you need to know it about. Wasn't, like, it, 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 it wasn't, hey, Van, what's your misconceptions? Let's go, let's go confront those. <laughs> Jewish just, athletics, right? Yeah. Right. This is just what we do. And by the way, that's a very small, minute thing. I know that doesn't, that, but when I'm, no, what I'm saying. Like that, it's a perfect example because once you catalog up like 900 of those, all of a sudden you get something much bigger. And so for me, it just, it all comes back to, and, I, and I'll bring it back to, I guess, answer your question a little bit more, is that there's going to take a little bit of intentionality not to understand each other, but just to be, right? Not even, like, not even just to be, just to be, right? To be. And I know what I want to do, but I just know that telling people who feel that they've been under attack for hundreds of years, that it's safe to come out, that it's safe to, to do something different. Number one, it has to really be safe, and I have to continue to fight for that. And number two, it's tough, man. The trauma of being black in America is physical, it's psychological, it's spiritual. I mean, we talk about how much Jesus binds us together. We don't worship together in this country. Not black and white people. The most segregated thing in the South is the church. You got black churches, white churches, worshiping the same God. I wonder if he touched down. I know he's everywhere, but if he was here, how would he feel about that? So I don't know. But what I do know is that there are good people who want answers everywhere, and that's the start. So I have two more questions. One is I wanted to pick up in that last thread, which is I look around at the battles against prejudice mm -hmm. in this country, whether it's racism or anti-Semitism or what have you. And I feel like the categories that we use are very, they're very technical and they're very dry. And oftentimes they come out of like academia or, or HR departments. I'll give you an example. Like systemic racism is a good example. That's a term that describes something like deeply real. I'm going to simplify, but just for the purpose of discussion, uh -huh. right? The idea that in order to partake of or participate in racism, you don't have to be a racist or you don't necessarily need to be a racist. You're part of a system in which the unlevel playing fields are kind of baked into just the assumptions of how you live your everyday life. And moreover, there's no such thing as a systemic racist. There's systemic racism that you participate in. Now, here's my, my problem with it. It's not that it's wrong. It's like it's too weak. It's like such a dry way of describing. Now, there's a term for that in my tradition and in your tradition, and it's the tradition that 
And it's it's almost like the most elemental part of our tradition, which is idolatry. And I, I learned this from my grandfather, who's my teacher. I talk about him on my podcast a lot. Actually, I mentioned him on your podcast also. My grandfather described racism like this was literally the day after the March on Washington. And he did this for his whole career. I mean, this is one of his kind of like innovations in Jewish thought is that American racism is idolatry because there's no such thing. You can be an idolater, right? You can worship an idol. But every example we've ever had of idol worship, there's no one idol worshiper. It's a whole society that makes it possible. And every single thing that you do in society is premised on those relationships. And in fact, if you want to think about the entire vocabulary that our society, like forget racism for a second, every piece of our American vocabulary for saying that something is bad, like anything is bad, terms that we just take for granted, like fire and brimstone or the devil's work or what, like every single term that we just take for granted as something bad, every single one of those terms, A, comes from the Bible and B, is used to condemn idolatry because it is the most heinous crime, right, that our traditions have been dedicated to eradicating. And so what I what I wonder is by removing that language of tradition from our moral vocabulary as we've done in, in the last couple decades, like Martin Luther King Jr. or other people who have done great things for progress in this country had no problem using that language of, of faith and language of the prophets to articulate an aspiration. But I feel like we've kind of almost thrown away our best weapon for condemning something that's terrible and bad and evil. So if we're going to fight against systemic racism or, or the phenomenon that we call systemic racism in this country or various equivalent terms for fighting against anti-Semitism or, or other bad ideologies, A, aren't we kind of throwing away our best weapon for fighting those things by kind of using this like very dry kind of academic terminology? And B, would that be a way for our communities to actually add something positive into the conversation? Because the two communities in the United States that are closest to those biblical traditions that lay at the foundation of our moral vocabulary, our shared moral vocabulary, are the black community and traditional Jewish communities. That's it. Right. Right. Uh, so it's a fantastic question, scintillating even. Um, so the answer is, I don't know. And it uh, that's that's Judaism for you, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll be honest. So, first of all, idolatry is the only thing that my grandmother was afraid of. Wow. It's the only thing she was afraid of. In New Jack City, before the guy shoots Neil LeBron, he says, idolater, your soul will will burn in hell. And then he, you know, because Nino Brown was a uh, was it was a drug dealer. Wow. And I remember asking her what idolatry was. Wow. And she says, idolatry is man's biggest mistake. It's the worst thing you can do, which is to put something before God and then, you know, worship it. The older I've gotten, the more that I've seen that idolatry is particularly American. The American dream is not really about sharing. The American dream isn't about society building. The American dream talks about what you have. It doesn't talk about what anybody else has. It's about you. It's a very individualistic thing. It's like, this is what you have. And there's nothing wrong with that, but what's happened to it is it's mutated and grown and grown and grown and grown to the point to now, all of these systems that we're talking about have to exist in order for a couple of people to run the country. And they're afraid because they're such huge idolaters that if we build new systems, then they'll have less access to their idols. 
And their idols are the only things that make them feel whole, that make them feel alive, that give their life any purpose or meaning because they don't have anything else. They're deficient in that way. And this is not to judge anybody's humanity, but what I'm saying is there's a level of greed that exists in this country that doesn't have anything to do with security. It has to do with power, has to do with dominance, and it has to do with social engineering in the way that you would want things to be and running little fiefdoms and little kingdoms that can last longer than a Roman Empire and stuff like that. And so when you look at it that way, when you something that's really so steeped in sin, you automatically say, okay, well, the only thing that can destroy it is the presence of God, which I believe. But there's a trick to that. The trick is that we read the Bible like we have amnesia. We read the Bible And we take parts of the Bible that we want and parts of the Bible that reinforce the narratives that we've created for ourselves. And the other part of the Bible, we seem to discard it. So if you ever read your Bible, you would know that none of God's servants are perfect. It's through their flaws in which God teaches lessons to the reader of the Bible for what they did wrong. And the Bible also makes a promise to you It makes a promise to you that you will get it wrong. It promises you that. This is how dope God is. God says, let me just take the pressure off of you. You're going to sin. Nobody else does that for you in life, okay? You go start working at a job. They say, hey, we got a zero tolerance policy on this. Or if you do this, it's fireable. If you do this, God, you're born. God says, hey, I'm just letting you know you're going to mess up. But I'm telling you, Right. No man alive shall do good and not sin. Right. Like I'm, I'm letting you know you're going to mess up. It's in your nature to mess up. And by the way, all of these guys I'm about to exalt in this book, they messed up. Abraham, Moses, King David, King Solomon. Abraham, Moses, King David, King Solomon, all of them, they messed up. You know, like they all did. So you're going to. So let's just take that away. But I'm telling you that I love you so much. I'm going to judge you for not your worst moments, but for the sum of all your parts and even your best ones. All right, so let's take that and let's look at society now. The difference between Martin Luther King Jr. then is, and Martin Luther King Jr. now is that if he existed today, there would be so many conversations about what he's not doing right that we might not be able to focus on what he is doing right, right? If you right now, sometimes I deal with mm. this. If I lead sometimes with my faith, then people will tear me apart the moment that I do something wrong. There's a guy out there right now. His name is Carl Lentz. He was the pastor of the Hillsong Church. Do you know the story I'm talking about? Hillsong Church, yeah. Hillsong Church, So I know Carl, right? And I am not saying that Carl didn't mess up. I'm not saying that at all. And I'm not saying that people in a leadership position in these different churches and these different places don't have a bigger responsibility. That comes with leadership no matter where you are. All I'm saying is that God still loves him. And what I'm saying is that I think that to a degree, Ari, that what we would really have to do is we'd really have to be what these texts say we should be. And we'd really have to have the grace and the forgiveness and not even the grace and the forgiveness, but also the conviction. Because you don't get get to go out there and throw caution to the wind and mess up all. We'd have to be all of those things. And to be all of those things is uncommon. That's hard. Like, that's hard. But if you're going to bring that book with you, you really got to mean it. And I sometimes think that people don't think that anybody means that anymore. They they haven't lost faith in God. Mm. They've lost faith in man, right? 
Because the minute somebody comes to you and say, listen, I'm going to put this book in front of you. It really can help you figure out your life. There's really some healing in it. What you start to say, okay, what are you selling me? Mm. Because remember, this is not for me dissing anybody. There are guys that are riding around in private jets based on that. Like we're in a weird place to where there would have to be almost a new generation of people that could lead that journey. And Ari, bro, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. If you are one of those people, please be unafraid to be that person. Because this earth is thirsty. I believe that this earth is dying of thirst. And so the, the reason why I, I would say it is our best weapon, and in a way, we've depowered that weapon. I don't believe in holding anybody to a standard that God isn't willing to hold them to. And so I think personally that, and there's still, don't get me wrong, there's still some amazing faith-based leaders out there that I follow, amazing guys. Um, but I think that the idolatry now is, it's like Godzilla. It's worse than we've ever seen. The inequality, the social inequality, it's, a, it's an arduous task. So here's my last question for you, because this actually plays into some, something that I know you're dealing with now, which is, I know this is going to seem like a weird segue, but uh -huh. this gets into the the Bachelor. Sure. Right? <laughs> which is, the con <laughs> for those of you who don't know, so <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Van, Lathan, uh, uh, Van Lathan's co-host, Rachel Lindsay, uh, was the Bachelorette. She was the first Bachelorette of color, I believe. And she was involved in a situation where uh, she did an interview with Chris Harrison, who's the host of The Bachelor. And, you know, you could kind of look it up online. I don't want to bore people with it, but you could sure. look it up online. Basically, Rachel correctly raised the question of of a contestant who had been to like a sort of like a, like an old South party at an antebellum yeah, yeah, yeah. house. Yeah, like a slave theme type of deal. Right. And, and Chris sort of like put it on Rachel. Like, right. this is your problem. Like, like, who am I? Who are you? Whatever. Mm -hmm. And now Chris Harrison sort of stepped off the, the bachelor. Fine. Part of what you just described, I loved how you put it. We haven't lost confidence in God. We've lost confidence in ourselves. That, I would argue, kind of begins in the 18th century. Okay. What human, kind of like what Western civilization, quote unquote, did as a response to that was it tried to build societies around institutions that wouldn't need to run on human virtue. So that's what capitalism is. That's what the market is. That's what this just exists for itself. Exactly. And it doesn't require anybody to be virtuous for it to function. The mo well, Actually, you have to be, in order for it to function, you actually have to be less than virtuous. Right, exactly. That makes right. it run. That makes it run. Runs, yeah. And I would argue, and I would argue. Whoever so, lives, lives. Whoever dies, dies. And I would argue in a weird way. I know we usually set up like the market and the state as opposites, but the state in many ways, the secular state kind of runs the same way, which is it's a way of like competing for power, right? This is how we've set up a way for us to compete for power in a way where, you know, we're not appealing to God as the ultimate arbiter of who gets to run the state, right? There's no divine right of kings. We're each contending with each other in the realm of politics to see who wins and who loses. Sure. And it's not a mistake, therefore, that it's not an accident that much like in the market, the modern state rewards the most ruthless actors. So because we've kind of created all of these systems that are designed to run not on virtue, but on avarice or greed or on these other things, just because we don't trust ourselves enough to have these important things run on virtue. So it's good to have these things that can kind of like function on their own, I suppose, right, without a religious justification. But on the other hand, when you need to call them to account, they don't have any standard that they accept. 
that allows you to call them to account. So I look at like The Bachelor, which you could just say is like a stand in for American pop culture in general. Sure. And at first I was like shocked by this whole, it was just such a crazy interview. Right. And as you said on your podcast, forget right and wrong. It was just smart and dumb, right? It was right. just stupid. But upon reflection, I'm like, why would I expect anything different, right? To the extent that culture, sort of like American popular culture, much like the state, much like the market, doesn't run on any particular principles. It's just about kind of individual influence and power. So there's no way to call it to account. The highest law in American culture, much like in American academia, much like in the market, is don't get sued, right? That's the highest value. It's the first through 10th commandments is thou shalt not be sued. Right. And so no one wants to take a stand on anything. And I, I almost feel like, man, how silly are we? Like, how silly is Van? How silly is Rachel, right? How silly are all of us for hoping that, like, one of the most popular institutions in American life would actually say, here's what's right. Let's do that. And it's going to be tough. It's going to require sacrifices, but we should do it because that's what virtue demands of us, demand sacrifice. And is there any way without being a theocracy, obviously, right? But like, is there any way for us to kind of bring those, those higher principles back into our life, bring something into our life that can allow it to whose judgment we can submit our most venerable and important institutions, whether it's the market, the state, or the culture? Is there any way for us to create a society that allows those things to be judged? Uh, yeah, we have to redefine them. It's like, right, is so subjective right now, man. As far as what Chris was doing as, as The Bachelor, a lot of people think that he was right. And to be honest with you, it's the thing that I struggle with the most because you and I have a very, a very static, sort of a concrete Actually, concrete. Well, what were the tablets made out of? Rock, right? <laughs> granite. Granite or something like that. So we have a very concrete example of what's right and wrong. And then, you know, I have Jesus. And so then I just have his life, which is really weird because Jesus's life is just full of all of these lessons. And the hokiest thing was, what would Jesus do? But it's the answer to every question. <laughs> It's like stupid. It's like it's like it became some kind of weird little thing. But the answer is like, I remember I was working at TMZ. Some people from the Westboro Baptist Church were across the street from us. And I rolled down my windows. I was driving by them. And I was like, yo. And I was just, I was having some fun with them because it was very, very funny. It was like three people. So I'm like, yo, do you literally think that Jesus Christ will be right here screaming the F word at the office? You really feel that way? Like, you, you seriously feel, like, I, I, I'm being for real. Like, not even on a Christian level. Just on a, let's say you weren't even a Christian. Right. Let's say you just read the Bible, and you took everything in there as actually a manual, right? And you're writing fanfic, right? <laughs> and you're writing fanfic, and you really think that if Jesus were here right now, he would be yelling the F word at people walking into the door. Okay, if you think that, just show me one time that he did something like that, right? And so it's very simple. It's the simplest, hardest thing in the world just to be decent. And it's the greatest gift that you can give to society. The greatest gift that you can give to society isn't philanthropy, right? It isn't political action, right? It's decency. And then the question becomes, what informs your decency? Why are you decent? I'm decent because there's a higher judge. I'm indecent all the time, but the decency that I do feel is because I feel like there's something greater than me that goes, yo, Van, I'm watching you. And more than anything, the brilliance of God is that God just wants to fellowship with you, just wants the connection and the relationship for having created all of this. 
just want you to say, hey, man, I appreciate you. Do this, do that. I got you. I'm with you. And when people don't feel that, sometimes I ask, you know, I have one of my brothers is an atheist, and I ask him, why don't you just go around destroying everything and taking advantage of everyone? If you believe that you're here for 70 years and then you waste away into a nothingness forever and there's no judge or no nothing, then why would you do anything right? You know what I mean? Like what, like what, what is the deal, right? And also, if you do believe that, if that is the way that you look at the world, then it would make sense to get as much as you can. It would make sense for you to only think about what it is that you're doing. It would make sense for you to only think about how things affect you and your family. Because none of this really matters, right? It's a cosmic crapshoot. So I think the first thing we do is we define what is right and why we believe what is right. And the difference between how we did it in the beginning and how we're going to do it now is now we've got to do it together. Now it can't be 1% of the people setting the rules. Now we have to look at America. We have to decide what we want. Not just America, the world. Everyone needs our help. Everyone needs our fellowship. Everyone needs our brother and sisterhood. Everyone needs this, right? We have to look at all of these things and figure out what informs us, what makes us feel whole, what brings us peace. Forget about all, bro, you know what this pandemic taught me? Is I don't want anything but peace. That's all I want. The career is great. My fiance is beautiful. I have a beautiful dog. Like all of these things are like her and I bond is obviously something that's spiritual and very deep to me. And I love her and I'm praying to God that I learn how to love her better. But what I want more than anything is peace. And you simply can't have peace without God. And you can't preach peace without God. And you can't go forth in peace without God. Ari, I've connected with you because I sense the God in you. I sense the anointing that you have. When I'm speaking to you and when I'm talking to you, you have a peaceful, calming presence. We do not share the same faith, but I know you mean what you say, right? And there's God in there. So unfortunately for you, it's not my job to figure out how to bring that to everybody. It's your job. So good luck with that. <laughs> but what I, so, so, but like what I can tell you is that I'm right here to help you. Amen. I could, I... <laughs> Everyone who knows me knows like I'm a big, I'm a very emotional dude. So don't don't mind me. I'm just crying over here. It's all right. Um, that's amazing, Van. First of all, be a thought warrior. Go listen to Higher Learning. Listen to Van. Listen to Rachel. We're gonna build something amazing. And all I can ask everyone who's listening, anyone who's listening, open your minds, open your hearts, open your souls. Don't just be along for the ride. There's no such thing as being community. You gotta do community. So let's all do this together. Let's all do this together. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Yeah, bro. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com.
The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop. <laughs>